Welcome to the Savvy Painter Podcast, the podcast for artists who mean business. Here's your host, Antrice Wood. Hello, it's Antrice, and welcome to another episode of the Savvy Painter Podcast. This week, I am really excited to share with you an interview with Connie Hayes. Connie is a painter from Rockland, Maine. She received her MFA from Tyler School of Art at Temple University in Philadelphia and Rome, her BFA from the Maine College of Art in Portland, her BA from the University of Maine, and she received fellowships to Skogenhagen School of Painting and Sculpture and the Vermont Studio Center. She taught at the Maine College of Art for 10 years and later was awarded an honorary doctorate in fine arts from the same college. Connie and I talk about learning to see, to really see. We also look back at her project, Borrowed Views. What started as a clever solution to needing a better place to paint for an upcoming solo show turned into a 10-year project, a book, and a museum exhibit. So Connie and I dive deep into that. So let's get started with this interview. So Connie, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, delighted. Can you tell me a little bit about when you decided to go pro in the sense of when you decided to dedicate yourself fully, fully to your art? Well, it wasn't in my childhood, and it wasn't in high school. And it wasn't in my first college experience, but it was in my second college experience when I went to the Maine College of Art. And I had a painting instructor who talked to me about painting and seeing. And I had had some basic courses in a university, but I'd taken a lot of education courses and English courses, and I was still not sure about the myth of talent, who had it who deserved to make it full-time. And no one in my family was involved in the arts, the fine arts. My mother was a craftsperson. Uh, She was an expert seamstress. I always had lots of colors around. I liked matching colors. I made puppets. Um, I got into lots of making experiences. And then they said, oh, maybe she'll have some lessons in junior high school. Um, And so I went to a hobbyist painter and copied impressionist postcards but it was it was just uh-huh. another thing a kid did but it was in the I was at the age of 24 I think that oh, wow. the light bulb went on because I had a teacher who said in the painting one he said here's a painting that is competent and sufficient and here's a profound painting done by Chardin And I looked at them both, and I didn't have the skills to say, well, I like them both. And then his painting class turned me around because I had a moment after seeing a Cezanne show in the 70s uh, at the Modern Museum of Art. And I had not been to an art museum until I was about 24. So it was a late bloomer. I grew up in rural Maine, so it's... um, It was not on the radar of possibilities, for a young girl in the 60s to think about professional, being a professional artist. And the day that I made a mark on one of my paintings that the instructor said, oh, now you're seeing, the, the whole world turned around. So I, I was able to make attractive things, interesting things, colorful things, but then there was this profound moment of seeing. And then I said, there's nothing else in the world I want to do more than paint. And that was the turning point. That's interesting. So 20, 24 is 
It's interesting because I think I started, um, I really knew for sure that's what I wanted to do. I was 19 and I felt, I was told that that was old or that, you know, like in the, in some ways that that was too old and in some ways that that was too young, depending on who I was talking to. <laughs> I'm not in this. Yes, yes. But I'm interested in what you said about um, the act of seeing and what that meant to you. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yes. The process of seeing is seeing the world as if it's already paint. It's a three-way relationship, in my view, of a perception out there in the world, a sensation, the materials themselves sitting in front of you and what they're able to do. And the canvas or surface that you're, we'll just stick with painting. I mean, art is a bigger world, but the painting process, you have what you put down as a mark, what the restrictions that the materials give you, and then your sensation. And you're triangulating all the time among those three things. And that process speaks back to you. So when I teach, I say, don't name the object. Ask the questions that paint can answer. How much, what kind, and where? And they look at me and they think, oh, that's a nice simple formula until they begin applying it. And then they realize, I'm naming, I'm naming, I'm naming. How do I do that tree? How do I get that mountain? How do I do the sky? How, how, how? And so you have a a world of Mm how-to, almost in conflict with the world of seeing. One is more technique and one is more discovery. So it's, it's a subtle difference. The world is full of amazing painters that use primarily technique uh, or primarily um, just material exploration or geometry. Or, and those are wonderful designs. They're wonderful metaphors. But I'm interested in the perception translation in the three-way relationship. That, yeah, I think so much. Um, because it does sound so simple when you say it when you break it and I know as a teacher that you need to break it down into something that they can remember into three steps that they can remember but just that one idea of of not naming the object is so difficult to to do because we are it's ingrained in us I think we name the object and we try to make the tree we try to make the mountain we try to make the box or whatever it is and to just how do you how do you deal with that with some of your students, or what ways do you try to help them get over naming it? Ooh, that's a big one. Well, it um, it often takes a good reinforced foundation program at a at a school or a group of people studying, where you have someone who pulls apart the color theory element, the drawing element. The, uh, the voice element and all of the things that people want and the expressive element in their lives. And you just have a group of people that have a similar approach to giving the fundamentals to learning people at any age um, and then reinforce it, reinforce it, reinforce it <clears throat> and bring out examples in history and put them side by side. And you can say, look at the trajectory of what Rembrandt did. See how he started with value and how he evolved towards temperature? And then you point it out and then you, you bring to light oh, the, the stumbling. The show that I saw of Cezanne, I went with another painter. 
And we were taking the same painting class together. And this is when we were in their, our 20s. And together we just scrutinized them. And they said, I think he lost his attention span in this one. I think he stumbled in this one. Oh, he got a little muddy in this one. That's why he stopped. So why do they all look so incomplete? Because he was very angry and frustrated because he was on the tightrope and he slit, his foot slipped. And so we, we've got very attuned to the imperfection of artists in their process and fell in love with the fact that we belong to that group that, that appreciates the trial and error process, that you stay with it, and then the exhilaration that happens when you walk that tightrope, not naming, not naming, not naming, and you get to the other side and the painting looks back at you and says, I'm realistic looking, aren't I? Because you didn't pay attention to the object. It's a gift in the painting that speaks back to you. A total surprise that you have something unexplainable that has air and space and light and has a set of priorities about value. And you go, how did I do that one? I want to do it again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I want the formula. And as we know, there is no formula. (laughs) That's right. I had one instructor who said, don't use the glass crowbar. And I said, what is that? I've never heard that. Oh, this is a funny analogy. He said, a crowbar is a tool, and it's something you can use the next time you go to do something. But don't try to use a crowbar to do the same thing you did last time, because it will break. Uh-huh. You think, oh, I've got, I've got it now. I did my best painting that I've done in a long time. It must be linear. Maybe the next one's going to be even better. But it's really, when I teach, I talk about a spiral. You, you stumble, you stumble, you stumble, stumble, and then you, ah, you have this wonderful moment where all went well. And then the next time you try to do something, you're on the back end of the spiral getting worse and worse and worse until you've done the worst painting you've done in a while. And then you start on that loop ahead. But if you look back, the spiral is moving forward. You are making progress, but you have to go backwards a number of times in order to remind yourself, ah, I have to do something that I'm learning mm-hmm. in order to that, that same exhilarated, exhilarated spot that I found and didn't know how I found it. Right, right. So you can't repeat it. And, then, and I think also you need time to digest it. For me, at least, when um, I'm in that rare state, I think, or sometimes it feels like a rare state, when I am just painting without a lot of, I don't want to say without thought, but it's just coming out. And you can't reproduce that and you can't like break it apart, I don't think. It's just your intuition and your painting memory and what you know of other artists is just coming out and you can't control it. Or at least I can't. I don't know if anyone else can, but I can't. Yeah, I think it's a moment of focus. It depends on how you paint. I mean, a lot of people just march into their studio. And, and I, have, I know a painter who does beautiful paintings. And I talked with him once and I said, wow, what, what is your process like? And he says, oh, I just put the radio on and, and I just do the boring part of executing the painting. I've already done the study and I'm just going to march through it. And I thought, whoa, I do not paint like that at all. No. <laughs> This work comes out beautiful, so you everybody's individual. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And I like, um, just to go back a little bit, I like 
there's there's so much to that I could unpack in in what you said. Um, but what I really like about what you said, um, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but what I'm picking out of it is the importance of community and other artists in your work and how ha- being able to help each other break down your own paintings and also that dialogue that happens that I think um, is so easy to lose um, if you're not very careful. Many people go through art school, you have it. Um, I think people, I'll, I'll speak for myself, that I took it for granted that, you know, that community of artists who are constantly giving you feedback um and then you get out and you feel like, okay, I'm on my own. I'm an artist now. Here I am in my studio. I can do this. And time goes by quickly. And all of a sudden, it's years since you've had a real conversation with another artist about your work. And I think we have to um, look for that and make sure that that exists in your studio. Otherwise, um, I don't know. It's... Um, the act of painting can be very solitary, but I don't think art is solitary. Right. Good point. Yeah. Well, the school situation, if you're in a good school and you really have people who are giving you substantial dialogue, that's a tremendous place to be. And, the, and many of the connections in, in your school mates follows through into your older life. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe, you're, maybe you move, maybe all kinds of things happen. Um, I think there's something positive about shedding all of the um, dogma that you do get and just all the monkeys on your back and then you can find a bit of your own voice. And there is some, there is some value to facing an empty room day after day all by yourself um, and trying to figure out of all the richness that you were given – what do what am I going to sort and toss and what am I going to own and and how do I create a discovery thread? I had a lot of years where I wasn't interacting with other people. I was just I was saturated with critique and I just couldn't. I just didn't want another critique. Right. Thank you. Go away. You know, I just think by myself. And in the past few years, um, I've because of the internet, I've looked at some people that paint in ways that I don't understand, don't get technically and just think, wow, where, where are they coming from? Not at all like my background. And, um, and this is a group and, and you interviewed Israel Hirschberg mm-hmm. uh-huh. and, um, and his, the mag- magnetism of the people that have learned from him and his school. I kept looking at thinking my education was not at all like that. I think I have to go hang around some of these people and what I loved is the work is so diverse, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm teaching there. I taught there last summer, and I'll teach there again this summer. And it is the philosophy of seeing, and yet the work looks different, thank goodness, rather than having it all look alike. What I see from the work that comes out of, of there is, um, and I think it's in response to the place, there's such a softness to the light such muted, very close in values, but very powerful paintings. And I'm, I haven't been there yet. I'm going actually this summer. My husband and I were just talking about it. And I, I imagine that that comes from the place and it doesn't seem to, to follow people in the sense that it's not like, oh, I painted these 
I painted Savita and it has this very soft light there and I really like that. So now I'm going to make that soft light wherever I am, even in Southern California at noon, I'm going to make that light. Yeah, it's really the dialogue among the artists and they come from all over. There's a certain group that I think um, listens to some of the approaches that Israel particularly values. And then there's a whole group of other students from all over that paint very differently than him. And so there's sparks in the dialogue. Uh, One of them was, you know, if you're painting with Israel, you know, scrape, scrape, scrape. And someone else says, don't scrape at all, you know, get it thick and and back and forth. And so there's a... uh, attention among the dialogue, which is very valuable. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. So I'd like to ask in your career, I'm curious, was there a moment or a decision you made in your career that was a personal success that maybe you looked back on at the time you didn't know it, but later you look back and said, wow, I am so glad I made that decision. Oh, absolutely. And it was in 1990, I was teaching at the main college of art and doing some administrative work. And I had the summers off because I was doing administrative part-time. And I said, okay, I've got to be very efficient here about my use of time. And I've been painting all along, but it would fit in these little pockets because I was paying off student loans and just busy. And I, I sent out a postcard to the board members of this art school and friends who had said, gee, I like your work. And I had a gallery in town that said, would you like to have a one-person show? So I had a deadline, I had a small audience, and I had time. So I had the ingredients to do something interesting. Except I lived in a, uh, I lived in a warehouse because the rent was cheap, 300 a month or something ridiculous. Wow. And I said, well... You know, it's dark in here and the windows are small. I've got to get outside. It's summer. So my, my postcard said, if you, ha- you know, hello, if you happen to know of anybody who has a cottage or a, a camp or a home or a balcony that, you know, they're not going to be home and I could borrow their view. Um, I have a one-person show and I'd like to have some new work from various locations. And I sent out the postcard to about 50 people. And most of them responded. And all of a sudden, I booked myself for a summer of 15 different places in eight weeks to paint. So I had deadlines. I had to paint fast. Um, I was by myself. I would just load my car with empty canvases and paint, go to one site, dump it back at the warehouse, switch out fresh laundry and fresh canvases, go out again, back and forth, back and forth. And it was exhausting but what came of that was at the opening and I just thought well I'm solving my problem because I don't have the money to rent a cottage or I'm not connected to people that are of that financial league so these turned out to be collectors that they were interested in buying the work and at the reception they brought 15 different families oh let's go together and see what they did with our cottage Connie did some paintings of our place. Let's go. So I would get each of the 15 people brought their their ripple effect. So the opening was jam-packed. And the shocking thing to me was, I mean, this is a long time ago, 1990, but I could hear people saying to each other or their friends, has Connie done you yet? (laughs) And I look over and I think, 
oh boy, this has potential. This has legs. I never had to send out another postcard. It was all word of mouth for ever since. Wow. And so I, I titled it Borrowed Views. And that concept stuck. People like the name. It, and then it snowballed into, I mean, it became my, what do you call it, identity or brand or whatever you want to call it. And it cascaded into a book, into a museum show. You know, it had a story. My painting had a story behind it. it had many yeah. stories behind it. And part of selling a painting is the story. I mean, they have to fall in love with the work, and then there's a story, and then they're, oh, i got to have it. So that that brand still lives. So even in Italy, I'm calling my painting class, bar, I'm borrowing a view in Italy. So the brand lives on with different applications. I'm glad I did that. <laughs> yeah, I love those stories of something that was just, yeah, ne- what is it? Necessity breeds innovation. Yes, yes, I love that. And it's so true um, what you mentioned about the stories that people want to hear the stories behind a painting. They may see it and say that it's something really beautiful, but when you ha- can share the moment or what was behind it and um, people very, very much respond to that. I noticed, you know, in my own show that I, I just had recently that um, the paintings where I, you know, just happened to be there and talk to the person about what was going on in the painting, what happened, something about that day that I did it, whatever, those those sold. And oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Um, but I, I think you added, um, it sounded like accidentally you added another layer to it by making it very, very personal for the people who were um, coming to the show. It was a tricky negotiation because they might think it's a commission. And so I had to set ground rules. As a painter, what I wanted was not to be bothered. I was, I was always out at my easel, and I, I would be in that moment of concentration, and someone would come along and talk to me and break the bubble. Mm-hmm. And then the painting would go off track. And I'm, I said, I, I need to be alone, and I need to be with as a bathroom. And um, I know there's a lot of empty real estate here in Maine. So let's put this together. Um, but they would say, oh, here's my favorite chair. Here's my favorite rock. And I said, let me surprise you. Nice. You know, and my husband would say, if you tell her to paint something, that's a real high likelihood that she won't do it. So leave her alone. <laughs> you know, you don't want to spoil it, but it's like naming the object. You know, it's like you want to follow your muses. You want to be independent. And so I said, you know, I don't do commissions. You don't have to buy anything, but you have first refusal at the gallery, private session. Um, And so I'm free and you're free. And it's, you know, a a wonderful window of opportunity for both of us. Right. Right. So I'm curious how, okay, so those were all, um, those were at first, at least, those were all people that you knew. So they had a level of trust with you and say, yeah, okay, we're going to leave Connie the keys to our house and she can come in and out at will. Exactly. Uh, we're away. I mean, I, and I said, oh, and I don't pet sit and I don't water plants. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> so, you know, I wanted all my time to myself because I had 15 sites. Yeah. So I, yeah, but you're on a track. Go ahead. Yeah. You're- and so, so, I mean, that, yeah, all of that is just brilliant. But I'm really curious about, 
gosh. Because I ran into this when I was painting, you know, portraits of people or I wanted to do portraits and people would either assume that they get the painting or that, you know, they can have it for $10, you know, because I sat for you. So I have my way of managing expectations with that. But I'm curious how that was for you and if you ever ran into any, like, uh, people pushing back or getting upset or... Um, mostly no, because there wasn't a likeness of themselves. So their vanity wasn't really in it, but people do have house vanity for sure. Mm -hmm. Make the house like magazine perfect for me. And I was like, Oh no, I like messy things. You know, I like, I like your personal desk, you know, don't mess, don't clean it up. But I didn't run into that actually, because there was a freedom. I think that they didn't have to buy anything. There was no obligation and no one was sitting for me. So Sitters yeah. get paid sometimes, so that's, yes. that's a whole different animal. True. And did you, I mean, so nobody expected you to, like, leave them a little present or anything like that. It just, they just really supported you coming in there and using the space. Yeah, I mean, I described it as an artist in residence, um, only okay. there was no competition for it because I always got it. <laughs> um, and that was one of the reasons I did it, because grants and situations... Yeah, there's a lot of competition for those things. What I did to kind of sweeten the, the arrangement was I would leave a note with a little drawing, a little tiny, you know, three-inch by three-inch little sketch of their view um, because I wouldn't see them. I would say, you know, I, I locked up the house and the keys are, you know, with your cousin and blah, blah, blah. And so I would leave a little handwritten note with the date and a little drawing. And I don't know if they kept them, but that I was – Assuming that this would take off and my work would increase in value and the early little notes, if they kept them, <laughs> would have some value. Yeah. At least, at least a line of history. So they would come home and there would be this sweet little note and then I would say, the paintings are drying, I'm going to sign them and then I'm going to get them photographed and you can see them at the gallery, X, and for a private viewing before anyone else sees them. So they had they had layers of anticipation that like Christmas, things to look forward to and the packages to open later and on and on. So I think, um, I don't, they might have expected it, but I didn't get that expressed. I love how you sort of built it up for them and um, whether consciously or not manage their expectations of what was going to happen. And I love also, I see artists and I struggle with this myself sometimes of, um, I love how, you both managed the expectations and honored yourself and your own work with, you know, this is going to have value. I'm asking for you to help me with this project, but I'm not begging you. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, it has value for them. And they, they want to know if their people are funny about their houses. They want to know if it's worthy of having me come paint. And I've painted in cottages and, you know, lake places with outhouses uh, all the way up to you know mansions with 14 bathrooms and and they're all interesting and they're all unique and i try to i found my job was to reassure people that your house is worthy <laughs> that's amazing it's a it's a funny i don't know what it is be, there's must something about oil painting immortalizing things mm -hmm. there's a myth around that and i'm and i'm thinking no, you bring a carpenter in, and they're they're getting their hands dirty. You bring a painter in like me. I'm getting I'm getting my hands dirty. You know, I'm one of the 
I'm one of the blue collar workers here, you know? Right, right. But on the other hand, they've elevated me up as well. So it's a, you know, art is elevated and it's not elevated at the same time. And it's a funny world, this art world. It is. They want something for cheap, but then they want to be in on the deal early and watch the value go up. It's um, it's a funny, it's a funny world. Yeah, it's a little, I think, kind of in a weird way bipolar, the way people see art, um, that they want a crystal ball to know that it's going to um, increase in value or be important, I think, those two things. There's some people that are in it solely for um, an investment. I think that's at the higher, you know, at the higher, higher ends of um of the art world, or I don't even know if higher end is the name for it. It's just a different part of the art world, a different neighborhood that I <clears throat> I'm noticing. It's all about the investment. But um, I think I feel like at least like what I would consider the real art world of, of artists who are creating their work and they've been able to communicate with their own collectors either by themselves or through a gallery Um I, that's where I see it, the, the hesitation of, is this important? Am I making the right decision? Do I, do I know any, do I know enough about art to be able to um, articulate why I bought this painting and why it's important if somebody comes over to my house and asks about it? That's, that's the important part. Do, do other, will other people judge me as having bad taste or being doing something stupid? Right. Do I trust my own uh, intuition about, I fell in love with it, but now I'm doubting it. Yeah, yeah. That's the role of the gallery person, to, to help them feel confident that their own intuition is what they should be guided by. Mm-hmm. So I want to switch gears a little bit um, on the flip side of that. Was there a moment in your career where it just did not go well? Um, I don't want to use the term failure. I think that um, puts a lot of pressure on you, but... But a time when um, it just either didn't go as planned or you were feeling like, what am I doing? Um, And most importantly, how did you deal with that and what did you learn from the experience? Well, in 1991, I was still doing borrowed views and I made a change from, I paid off my student loans. So I made a change from teaching, administrating, and with my then husband, we moved, both moved to New York City. He got a job at School of Visual Arts in their business office. And it was, I was rubbing my hands together. It's my turn. I'm going to go to the Big Apple. Yippee. And it turned out that <clears throat> for various reasons, I had to divorce him immediately. And I said, but I, I'm not going home. I'm not going back to Maine. I, I, this is my dream. I'm going to make it happen. And so I took on some illustration jobs, which was not a good fit for me. And then I got into stock illustration, which was very good for me. The work that already existed, I could sell as stock for. An example is that one painting sold for $300, and then I got $10,000 reproduction um, rights for it at the time in 91. It's a different world now. But then... There wasn't the web of images that they could grab from, and they had to pay artists. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, this is a whole can of worms I never even knew I could open. <laughs> but I was, talk about failure or, or difficulty. 
I, it's expensive to live in New York, so I would sublet my apartment and run back to Maine in the summers and do borrowed views there. And then I did some, came back and, you know, it's a two-city thing. But still, there was one point where I was thinking, I need income here. <laughs> what mm-hmm. am I going to do? So I said, and I had been dean, uh, an interim dean at the Maine College of Art, so I felt like, yeah, I've really done well in this arts administration and teaching. I feel really solid and great. And I get to New York and I'm like, by myself, I need income. So I thought, well, why don't I temp at some places? Why don't I just be a, a, apply to the temp agencies? So I thought, well, here we go. And I applied to the temp agencies. None of my skills were a match. None of them. They, I took these little tests and like, how many pieces of software do you know? None. How fast do you type? I don't really do that. All the things that were requirements to work in a low-level office position, I had no skills for. <laughs> and I'm like, boy, I went from top of the heap to bottom of the heap, and I don't fit. And I don't in- qualify. <laughs> qualify. And I'm like, huh, now what do I do? So it's always an edge of invention. So I, I, I felt just horrible, like, at that moment of my life. I said, okay, I'm in another position where how do I reinvent my situation? And that's where I invented going to Maine in the summer, subletting my apartment. So I didn't have to pay rent because I, I dovetailed all my borrowed views together. <laughs> I, so I had a lot of borrowed views. I would go from one house to the next. And then if I had a gap, I had friends, I would sleep on their couch and you know this kind of piece it together. But then there was a moment, as it turned around, I was just on a, on a treadmill of like <laughs> packing, uh, imagining, phone calling, arranging, blah, blah, blah. And then comes April and I have to do my taxes. So I'm sitting, I guess like March or whatever. So I'm in, in New York City at my computer with a big basket of receipts entering the mall. And I'm looking at it and I think, I made a lot of money this year. <laughs> <laughs> and I was shocked. I made enough so that I thought, I can't tell my other starving artist friends how much I made because they'll be annoyed. I don't want to brag. Right. I made enough so I realized I could buy a house in Maine. And I made more than the boyfriend that I was dating at the time. I couldn't tell him because <laughs> you know, that, you know, the balance of things, it doesn't go well when you when you brag like that. So... I was sitting there at like 2 in the morning, jumping up and down, thinking, I did it, I did it, I did it, I'm, over, I'm way over the hump. And I was like, I don't have anybody to tell this to. And it was peculiar. That is, it is, it's very peculiar. And I think it's, I don't know, I completely understand it in one sense, but I think it's so sad that we can't get excited about our financial success without feeling guilty about it. It wasn't so much guilt, it was about bragging to the group of people who I knew were struggling, mm-hmm. my friends. Mm-hmm. I kind of went to a level of, now who, who, is, who are my comrades at this point? Only super ex- successful artists. And I, I kept hearing, oh, only a small population makes a living off their art. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know how this happened, but I ended up in this population, you know, over, I don't know, I, I worked overtime 
because I thought it would never happen. Right. And that that income came from the borrowed views and from selling the artwork to the people whose homes you were in or you were showing and doing all of that at the same time? Combine that with winter illustration, stock illustration, renting out, not having rent in the uh, summers, and then painting like mad all summer long and then leaving that artwork in Maine and that would sell over the winter. So I, would, I got three or four sources of income, mm-hmm. and they compiled. And I didn't think that they would all add up to as much as they did. Right. And truly, it was a shock to me. <laughs> and, so, and at that time, you were you still teaching or no? I have not been teaching since 1991. Okay. That was the point where I said, art has to do it. I even, I even tried to teach in New York, and they said, no, no, no. No, 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 we're not hiring right now. And I'm like, okay, my options in New York. I'm not fitting here very well in New York. (laughs) (laughs) And I wasn't able to get, well, I showed in New York, but not in the places that I wanted to. And I didn't have connections. I hadn't built relationships. And, you know, I'm doing these, at the time, which looked like wholesome main landscapes. And that wasn't a big hit in New York. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, was this a good decision or a bad decision to move to New York? So it turned out that Maine is my home and I love it and I love going other places, but I don't have to chase that invisible monster called New York. So Right. How long so how long did you did you stay there? Was there something about New York that you're like that, you know, now you think that's a piece that at the time was tough, but I'm so glad I did it? Or was it well, just like, yeah, I lived in New York? Oh, no, no. I maximized it for what it was worth. I mean, I stayed there six years. In my fantasy world, it was the Wizard of Oz. It was the um, Emerald City. Mm -hmm. I had to go there. (laughs) And I had gone to the museums, and I thought, you know, I really, really want to have a good chunk of my life where I'm working for myself. I can walk over to the Frick and just look at a Vermeer at a moment's notice. I can walk down and look at as many Rembrandts as I want to, and I can go to the galleries and just, get, just sniff around and see what's happening. I'm, I'm not particularly a trend follower, but I, like, I wanted the familiarity of that city, and I wanted to own it. And then when I did, I said, okay, now I can leave. Mm-hmm. And it took six years. I don't know how it is in Maine where you grew up and, and where you live, but did the proximity to that type of art shape you in some way? Either or like It's kind of hard to say, like, you know, being able to go see a Vermeer, I'm sure that had a um, an impact on you. But I'm curious if it either strengthened your resolve or changed your painting in any way, or if it was just an amazing, beautiful thing to be able to walk in there anytime you wanted. I don't think it's direct in terms of um, fueling my painting, but a steady diet of good nutrition, <laughs> visual nutrition, is important. Um, in in um, 1980 to 82, or 80, 81, I was in Rome in graduate school, and that was an intense immersion into art history that I'd never had uh, on site. So that was, I had, it wasn't like I hadn't in, 90, in 91, I'd, had already um, had great nutrition in terms of visual um, nourishment. Um, but I wanted more of it, and I wanted it to be right at my fingertips 
just any time I felt like looking. So, it, it, but it wasn't a direct influence. I just think it was um, to keep me healthy, visually healthy. That makes sense. And I'm curious, like that makes me also think so much has changed since then with the internet in the past 10 years that access to to that kind of work, I mean, it's not the same to see it on a computer, but I'm just thinking of, I experienced that sort of kind of the opposite shift, living in a metropolis and then going somewhere very rural and missing that there's not going to be a big show coming here to this little town that I'm in. And wanting to sort of recreate that and being very grateful for the fact or like at least having some, it may be watered down, but at least getting some vitamins from the internet, I guess, and being able to see things online. And, and like you said, um, check, you know, check out what's going on with other artists. And it's never the same as seeing it in person. But you can see you can find a lot of really amazing work. And then also, if I want to see a Vermeer, I can Google it and at least check it out in some way. All painters, there's just all people. There's nothing like standing in front of the piece. But I don't undervalue. Um, I mean, I don't put down looking at work on the internet. I think sometimes all you need is just a little spark to get yourself going. And it's really the time that you spend with your own paint and your own work. I mean, you know, older, older, I've read a lot of biographies of older people and they say, you know, I just don't go to the museums anymore. I'm too involved in my own work. So I think the older you get, the more experience that you already have in your veins and in your eyes and part of your DNA, and you just need to paint. Um, but if you're still puzzled by things that you want to understand or still baffled by someone who just, you know, is knee-bucklingly amazing, you know, you plan a trip and you just, and it's how you make those museum trips now that will be very different than the survey of like, oh, I'm going to see this and this and this. I mean, my husband and I, we go to a museum now and we may stand I mean, if we went to the Prado, we would probably see maybe four paintings, and we would spend about an hour and a half in front of each one. And that's all we would do, and we would not feel like, oh, I haven't done the whole museum. Right. So it's a different kind of looking, and that when you bring that kind of looking back to the studio, it lasts and lasts. And all you need to do is just peek at it on the, on the screen and say, oh, yeah, 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 I remember now. Okay, yeah, oh, that passage. That doesn't show up in there. But I remember that, or I, or I snuck a camera shot of that detail of that fingernail, and whatever it is that you've done. So it's how you go to a feast, whether it's how it's going right. to nourish you, I think. But there's a real value to being in a genuine place, and it sounds like that's where you are. You're in a genuine environment with genuine people, and they're not snooty, and they're not, you know, the art, the art ego doesn't exist there, which is... You know, you want to bring children in, they'll tell you a lot about painting. Or you want to bring, you know, an 80-year-old woman in and say, you know, what do you see? And they're going to, you know, everybody sees. Differently. It's all valuable. What are you working on right now? Or what are you currently obsessed with? I'm obsessed lately with some of the things I learned last summer when, um, I mean, I learned a lot from teaching. But Vincent Desiderio was the artist last summer there. And... I took my students to all of his critiques, and there's a verbal person, and there is someone who is incredibly brilliant and articulate and 
you know, his brain is just, the wheels are flying. And so it's not how I operate and, and not how I paint, but I deeply admire his work. So I would, I was taking notes about the vocabulary that he used and what I'm doing. And it wasn't just vocabulary about art history. It was vocabulary about how paint is structured and it wasn't technique so much as about how to get the light and the air and the space in the painting that you want. You could do it this way. You could do it that way. And his terminology was just not at all familiar with to me. Um, and I think there's a group of people in Philadelphia who it's more familiar with, the academy there. And so I think if I was to do my life over, I would probably go to the Pennsylvania Academy and learn those things. But I wouldn't trade it for the kind of seeing that this one painter I had, you know, pulled the light bulb on for me. Right. So I, I'm like playing catch up with some of the things that I, that I consider mysterious. And so what I'm personally working on now is a series of more shallow spaces, walls of Chavita that the light is on with things hanging more shallow space. I Typically, I use a deeper space. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to play with shallow space. And I'm also going to play with more muted colors. I often used a lot of intense colors. And now I'm using uh, a lot more neutrals. And I'm teaching myself how to use neutrals in terms of the warmth and the shadows and the coolness of light or the warmth of light and the coolness of shadows. And I hadn't really... I saw that, I got it intuitively, but now I have words and I have um, well, intentions that I might set out to do on purpose. And so it's a, it's a different way that I'm painting. Uh, I don't know where it's going. I'm stumbling and I love stumbling. And I like problems mm-hmm. and I like the privacy of people not seeing everything that I'm doing <laughs> because they might be flops. And I and I want to make flops because I know I know you only learn when you are struggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true with everything. And um, yeah, as much as it, it's such an uncomfortable place to be in, especially when you've mastered something and you're you you get that feeling of just absolute you know con- competence in what it is that you're executing. Um, and it takes guts, I think, to to do that, to say like, okay, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to go back to that space where it's really uncomfortable and I'm going to make a bunch of flops and I'm going to, you know, go back to that place of learning where it's frustrating and you have a vision and you don't know how to execute it or you're seeing something and you're not, maybe not clear on what it is you want to say about it and you're stumbling around with your vocabulary and trying to articulate something. Um, That's, that's really tough, and it's and I think that um, it's easy for people to not go there. It's easy for people to just say, "I'm really comfortable painting this scene, and it's selling, so I'm going to keep doing it." Yeah, it's, it's um, but when you get to that point, other painters recognize the deadness in the work. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think you know, too. I think, or not you personally, but I think the artist knows that that's what's going on and that they're afraid and that there's a real, if they're honest, there's a real struggle going on there. And it's worth seeking out through history, the people that took those risks and changed. 
um, and changed in dramatic ways. I'm thinking of uh, Philip Guston. You know, so many people admire Philip Guston, and he changed in two or three major chapters that people said, "Are you off your rocker?" <laughs> yeah. So it's, so it's good to have someone out there that, you know, walked out on the limb further than you would ever dare to. Right, right. That is good. So Borrowed Views, to me, that's sort of a dream project. And I, I had my own sort of dream project that I'm still expanding on. But if you, so right now, if there were no restrictions on time or money, what would you, would you do anything differently right now? Would you, do you have something that you would just like, go that's my next dream project no because all along the way i feel like i've been living my dream even though it's been a struggle Mm -hmm. so i feel like i've got a fabulous supportive husband who's an architect and has an eye and always wants me to do my dream and i'm married to someone who makes my life dreamy (laughs) so I, i don't i don't no, I'm very happy right now. That's awesome. Um, so if you could own a piece of art by any living artist, what would it be or whose? I'm glad I got that question ahead of time. <laughs> I wrote down a whole bunch of names and I thought, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there's a painter who's Belgian, Michael Boromans, and um, he is the weirdest painter. He's representational. Um uh, He's theatrical. Some of his paintings have strong color. Some of them are muted. There's one painting that there are these two kind of like adolescent boys with their heads looking down, and they're holding a rabbit, and they're just looking at the, at the dead rabbit. And I don't know. It's just his paint quality is amazing. I haven't seen him in life. I've only seen him in pictures. But I can't imagine that they're not astounding. I've seen a video of him, of him talking and he's just humble, and I just, I think, and I love Belgium. Um, that was my first experience with Europe was I landed in Bruges, and so I'm thinking, I don't know. And I just like what's going on up there, and, and it's, they're not following the New York trend, and they're not following the L.A. trend, and he's just an odd duck with gorgeous paint so anyway that's who i would that's it is love it i i'm not familiar with his work but now i'm definitely going to go look him up and most people are not so which was more the reason that i like him yeah (laughs) um you sent me an amazing list of books i am so excited for some of them to read but what are you reading right now well i'm not a i'm not a voracious reader and I like listening to books on tape while I'm painting. And I've been picking books that are, I don't know, the canon of books that I would never read. My husband read out loud to me the um, Moby Dick. He read that out loud to me and I fell asleep too many times. So I have to be awake and I have to be. So I just put on um, Swan's Way by Proust. And I'm thinking, I don't know anything about Proust. I'm no, I don't know anything about Swan's Way. I don't know the time period. So I thought, it's time for me to catch up with some of the classics. Anna Karenina, I listened to that on tape. Things that I know I would fall asleep if I was reading. Them. <laughs> when I do read, I like reading um, Alice Munro. And I also like clipping out articles from The New Yorker. 
and, mm-hmm. and stapling them together and then just reading just the article I want to read. I don't care how old it is. What advice would you give to yourself, the artist that you were 10 years ago? Um, I would give advice. Don't chase other people's dreams. Chase your own. And don't be too compliant when people want you to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and just build your confidence and make a, as, as an artist, make a mission statement for yourself, post it on your wall, and every time you get a phone call, compare the opportunity to your mission statement. Is this really what I want to be doing? I love that. Connie, thank you so much for spending the time with me. That was a wonderful conversation. I absolutely loved it. I love your whole project. I'm glad to have met you. Thanks so much for listening to this week's podcast. As always, check out the show notes at SavvyPainter.com. You can see a couple examples of Connie's paintings, get links to her website, which is ConnieHayes.com. And she also sent me a list of books that she recommends. So I shared that with all of you. It's a great list. There's some really good books in there. Plus, Connie was really generous and thoughtful on one of the questions that I had sent her for the interview, which is how she sees the art market changing in five years. She wrote up a really interesting response to that question, so I'm sharing that with you as well. And you'll find that at SavvyPainter.com in the show notes. Now, in the last episode, I mentioned that the podcast will be coming out every two weeks for the next couple of months. The reason why is my husband, Koke, and I are planning the next couple of months and hopefully going on an extended painting excursion to Ireland, Spain, and Italy. So we're getting ready for that. And there's a lot of things that are kind of in flux for us right now. So I needed a little bit of extra time to make sure that um, things are good at home. So we've been planning all that stuff and getting ready for that. But this week we had a big surprise from U.S. Immigration. In the past, they've taken months to respond to paperwork that we've sent them for my husband, because he's from Argentina, so we're getting his U.S. residency. And we figured that we were clear for the summer. We are at the very, very, very last stages of getting that paperwork done. And since we live outside of the U.S., the process is a little different, but we are almost there. It just makes our life a little bit crazy right now. So just to keep us on our toes... U.S. Immigration let us know that, quote, soon we will be giving a date on which we have to be back in Argentina for an interview. So this is right in the middle of us getting ready to make our plans to go to Europe for the summer. Found a great deal on plane tickets. I'm just about to click buy and we get this email. So we're in limbo again until they tell us exactly when we have to be back in Argentina. So this week, we also celebrated both of our birthdays. They're two days apart. And we decided while we're waiting, we're just going to hit the road and have some fun. So we are on a road trip from Los Angeles where we're visiting family. And we drove all the way up the coast of California to San Francisco. And we went through Yosemite. And we're going to be going up to Lake Tahoe to visit some friends. So right now, I'm recording this part of the show from a tiny little hotel outside of Yosemite. It's pretty funny. It's a good thing that we are both so flexible. So the next episode will be an interview with watercolor artist Mario Robinson. It's a great interview, and that's going to be available to you in two weeks. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Until the next time, this is Anne Wood with the Savvy Painter Podcast. Take care.